Will Canada's federal election be won on the international stage? Hello and welcome to the Unpublished Cafe. I'm Ed Hand. Voters are a mere two months away from heading to the ballot box. When the Liberals came to power in 2015, Justin Trudeau pledged Canada is back and sunny ways as a counter to the 10 years of Stephen Harper. But the positive words and ambition were somewhat derailed by the 2016 U.S. election, which vaulted Donald Trump into the Oval Office. And since then, Canada's foreign policy has been turned upside down by his erratic behavior. It's a challenge, to say the least to know when to zig when he zags. Justin Trudeau notes that the world needed more Canada, and he would bring it. Global media initially fawned over the new prime minister, but those eyes also saw mistakes and missteps over the last four years. It will be interesting to monitor Canadians' views on foreign policy when it comes to who to vote for. Is it an issue that's close to Canadians' hearts? Today on the Unpublished Cafe, we'll take a look at Canada's approach to foreign policy and whether it'll be a major influence in the upcoming election. We'll chat with Stephen Sademan, the Patterson Chair in International Affairs, as well as the Director of the Canadian Defence and Security Network at Carleton University. We'll get his perspective on the party's approach to foreign affairs. First, I am pleased to be joined by Peggy Mason, President of the Rideau Institute, which has the aim to help revitalize Canada's peacekeeping, diplomatic peacemaking, and peacebuilding roles in the world. And Peggy, thank you for joining us. You're welcome. Canada is back with Justin Trudeau's call to the world. Is Canada back? Well, uh, I guess we're not as far back as many as was promised and many of us hoped. I think it's a fair commentary to say that there has been a, a gap. And, of course, you signaled the, a big reason why um, with the uh, election of Donald Trump in the United States, um, we began to see almost immediately uh, Canadian uh, retrenchment, if you will. So the result has been uh, a, a gap between our foreign policy rhetoric, which has largely uh, continued uh, with the Canada expressing strong support for the multilateral system and the rules-based international order, but the reality, uh, you know, being quite, being quite different from that. And I would add the point that it wasn't just, with the election of um, Donald Trump as president of the United States, um, Canada reorganized its um, approach, its cabinet. Of course, that would make sense. Um, and uh, one of the results of that was uh, Christia Freeland, then Minister of International Trade, uh, made Canada's foreign minister, but given continuing responsibility as Minister of Canada-U.S. Trade. And if you were going to try and devise a setup that would sideline the rest of the multilateral agenda, that would be the way to do it. Because it means your foreign minister is not really a foreign minister. Your foreign minister is a Canada-U.S. trade minister who perhaps in her spare time looks at the rest of the agenda. So the result has been that the promises of Canada really uh, coming back um, uh, and 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 putting its money where its mouth is, you know, has not. We haven't seen that to a large extent. How would you compare Justin Trudeau's approach to foreign policy compared to his predecessor? Well, you see, the the interesting point that has to be made constantly is that the rhetoric actually matters. 
and that in fact, even where you we can point to a number of areas where we can say, well, you know, the the actual policy is is regrettably not much different. The rhetoric is still different, and in in a situation in a global situation where you've got the president of the United States attacking global institutions on a daily basis, attacking um, common rules, international law, threatening to take the international, you know, to to a to a sanction the International Criminal Court, threatening to to um, prosecute uh, judges from the court to the enter the U.S. When you've got that kind of global attack by the United States on the global rules of the road, the fact that you've got a government, a Canadian government, that at least rhetorically, and that's one thing that the foreign minister has continued to do, to constantly remind that we need uh, international rules of the road and we need to be working in support of them, that matters. So while... um, so the biggest, perhaps, and there are uh, happily some other areas of difference, but so the, the, the really in, in when, when push comes to shove, the biggest single difference uh, between the foreign policy of the Harper government and the present government, I mean, aside from, from the climate issue, which is, which is massive and huge, but on other foreign policy issues, the biggest difference is the fact is Canada's rhetoric as opposed to what we're doing in reality. Um, and uh, so, you know, that if, 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 um, but if we look at the, at the kind of substance um, of the issues, you know, then we start to see that, um, you know, there isn't, you know, there isn't such a big difference. And, and let's take, let's take the, the question of Israel-Palestine. The government promised, uh, you know, a more balanced approach. Uh, and it is true that they have reinstated funding, a very important funding for Palestinians um, uh, through the main uh, refugee agency that um, helps them, that had been that had been ended by the Harper government, and the Trudeau government reinstated that, um, and they have you know strongly um, uh, reiterated Canada's balanced policy. But if you look at our voting at the UN. The policy started, well, it really accelerated by the Harper government of Canada being very isolated on votes involving Israel-Palestine. And in, in many cases, it's only Canada, the U.S., Israel, and, you know, the Marshall Islands largely, you know, funded by the U.S. that are voting or, on, you know, voting with Israel on certain resolutions. So, you know, that's an indicator where... Um, the rhetoric is better. Actually, the funding in support of Palestinians um, is better. But um, our stance at the UN, um, uh, you know, is uh, it, it, it has continued to be um, isolating us from a more balanced role. Um, now, if we look at the, however, if we it, rather than looking backwards at the Harper government, if we look at the at the sheer 
conservatives and what they're promising. Of course, they're promising to go much further down the line of uh, an unbalanced approach, and that is they're promising to follow the, you know, the terrible uh, steps taken by the by the Trump administration in um, recognizing Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, contrary to all of the international law and UN Security Council resolutions object. Um, and they have even promised that Canada would move uh, its embassies to Jerusalem. So, um, so we have a situation where, okay, the, the, the policy is not as balanced as the Liberals promised uh, at all. Uh, but on the other hand, um, it's uh, it's not what the what the sheer conservatives would do, which would be to completely um, take one side, uh, you know, of the equation. Peggy Mason joining us on the Unpublished Cafe. She's president of the Rideau Institute as we talk about foreign affairs policy as we head towards the federal election coming up in October. And, yeah, we've talked about our, our closest neighbor and biggest trading partner, the U.S., and obviously we've had some curveballs thrown at us since uh, Donald Trump became president. On the international stage, how do you deal and negotiate with somebody who is at, as impulsive, almost petulant, as he is? Of course, that is the, that's the, that's the I wouldn't even say million, I'd say trillion-dollar question. That's what all... Um, um, uh, Canada's allies who care, and, and not just Canada's allies, all countries in the world who really do care about uh, collective rules of the road, what they're all uh, grappling with. And um, really, um, I mean, there are sort of two, there are kind of two levels to that. There are things you can do um, to shore up the international system where the U.S., for the moment doesn't seem to care. And I would take the example of UN peacekeeping. And that is one area where, where although the government did not go, the liberal government did not go nearly as far as we would have liked with respect to re-engagement. I mean, one of their election promises was to fully re-engage in UN peacekeeping. They did re-engage and they have had a number of, of initiatives still, you know, far below the numbers in terms of peacekeepers we would like to see, but nonetheless, they did, they did take some significant um, steps. And it, it, so far as one can tell, um, I mean, Obama, under the Obama administration, they were very supportive of UN peacekeeping, and I don't think it was widely known that, in fact, they were very close to negotiating terms under which uh, UN, uh, U.S. forces would actually participate under a U.N. Um, uh, leadership, which would have been, you know, I mean, unprecedented for, well, it would have been from a very long time since the U.S. Uh, has done that. But the Bush administration, but the Trump administration is, you know, uh, hostile to the U.N., but they seem to have, you know, they haven't really focused much attention on U.N. peacekeeping, except, of course, to severely... Uh, curtail the budget. I mean, they, they, you know, the Trump administration has wreaked havoc on the UN budget and part of the, of the damage was to UN peacekeeping. But nonetheless, they didn't seem to care much about Canada participating in it. That didn't seem to be a point of friction. And therefore, um, this would have been an area where we would have liked to have seen Canada do even more. So it was a good step 
but it would have been, uh, you know, since it was an area where they could act without coming into, you know, direct conflict with the Trump administration, we would have liked to have seen more. So that's the first thing. And again, if you had a foreign minister who was a full-time foreign minister, that would be the job of the foreign minister. Looking very closely at the entire array of foreign policy areas where Canada has an interest and could work, and then trying to see where are the areas where we can really move forward without going into direct conflict with the United States. And then in other areas where that can't be avoided, looking much more closely at how can we work with other allies. And on that example, I would use, you know, on that case, and I would use the example of Iran. I mean, most of, of, our, of our allies um, are working. I mean, the UK and, um, uh, and Germany and, well, the UK until recently, although it's hard to say what Johnson's going to do. But uh, Germany and, uh, well, and led by the EU, has been working extremely hard to try and, and, and keep together the, the Iran nuclear deal in the face of the United States, um, you know, unilaterally violating that deal. And, um, you know, they've tried all sorts of things. And Canada has rhetorically supported the deal and regretted the United States leaving it, um, but essentially has not done much else, um, except our foreign minister has, you know, repeated parroted American criticisms of Iran, um, and many of which, you know, lack substance. So again, um, there's an area where Canada, again, if we had a foreign minister that was really focused on, okay, how can we maximize our ability to maneuver here without, you know, totally putting ourselves in the line of fire with the United States, then that means work with other allies. And, um, you know, we just haven't been doing that. The, you know, it's, it, it, there's a dual problem. It's not just that, that our foreign minister is, is mainly focused and looks at everything it appears from a trade perspective first, and so you've got no balancing with other things. She also seems to have extremely hawkish tendencies. I mean, you know, I'm tempted to say she is a wolf in, and I'll have to spell it out, use, E-W-E's, clothing to a great extent, and um, always seems to take a, you know, a knee-jerk hardline approach uh, to, to um, uh, you know, to issues. So if we mention Iran, for example, these gratuitous uh, attacks on Iran when in fact our position is is very much to try and keep the the nuclear to, to support the Iran nuclear deal or um, if we take um, you know Canada's role with respect to um, Ukraine I mean essentially that role um, uh, the, the, you know the Harper uh, uh, role has uh, of just uh, not not really seeking to help find a solution to the problem, but simply um, playing, I would say, to the hardest uh, line communities, nationalist Ukrainian nationalist communities in Canada, by just attacking. Um, you know, attacking uh, Russia at every turn, and rather than really trying to put support into, there is a peace process. Um, there are Europeans who are engaged in that and really trying to support that. Um, so, a, a long way around to saying that this, in order to deal with this extraordinary challenge posed by, by, uh, by, you know, by, by 
by President Trump, uh, Trump, which all our allies are trying to deal with. You really need a foreign minister focused on that. You know, who do we work with? How do we work with them? How do we, um, you know, in concrete ways, try, try to keep um, uh, supporting multilateral rules of the road? You know, Justin Trudeau's had some stumbles in foreign affairs over the last four years, the ill-fated India trip, uh, nothing in terms of a trade deal with China. Do you see those as having an impact on voters come October? You know, it's interesting. It's very, very hard to, 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 to gauge the impact on voters. I mean, it's interesting. That's one of the traps. One of the problems that the, um, that the Liberals faced were a number of traps that were laid, and I use those terms deliberately. I'm, actually, I'm picking up from a foreign policy um, uh, professor Juno, who's used this term of of, of traps that were um, that were laid by um, by the conservatives, and you know, which have made it very very difficult in a number of areas. And and partly, what to sum that up, what that what that means is is that the the foreign policy, um, if we take Iran for example. Um, uh, under the Harper government was very much geared at um, assuaging that part of the Canadian community um, that cares about these issues that, that that's anti-Iran that fled the country and that has and that and that you know wants a very hardline position um, and that's also true with respect to the policy with Ukraine for example the trouble is those are the communities that are most interested in those issues, whereas the bulk of Canadians, you know, they're interested in good relations. I think the whole idea of Canada being back and strengthening multilateralism and strengthening uh, uh, the UN, that's all, generally speaking, people, you know, the majority of people are supportive of that. But when push comes to shove, that's not the issues that they're voting on. And that's why these kinds of... Um, of, of, of using foreign policy as a kind of a wedge issue to target communities that care about it. What that means is, is that it's hard then for the government to make changes because um, if they start to make those changes, the squeaky wheel, those that are following it most closely are going to react very, very strongly and others, you know, are not necessarily going to be paying much attention. Um, so that's kind of the dilemma of, uh, you know, of foreign policy. And, um, and, and so it matters a lot to individual communities in particular areas, and that's why balancing everything is so important. But um, overall, overall, it's you know it's harder to say what what the um, you know what the outcome is going to be. Other than I think that there, I mean, I think I think that broadly speaking, there is disappointment that Canada, uh, you know, has has not. Um, you know, not lived up to its promise of, of, of Canada's back. But on the other hand, I, you know, I think Canadians are pretty pragmatic, and I think they're also going to understand that this, you know, this problem of dealing with Trump is, um, you know, is a huge one. Um, and that's why I think in terms of the election campaign, there's a real opportunity, actually, um, for the government to try and demonstrate that they understand, they've learned, and that they want to work harder with others to strengthen the international rules. Um, you know, they're going to, in order to make that credible, they're going to have to, you know, come up with some, with some meaningful promises. Um, but I'm not convinced that, um, 
you know, there's nothing they can say on foreign policy that wouldn't that wouldn't appeal that wouldn't appeal to voters. You know, there's a number of hot spots Canada's going to have to deal with in the near future. We'll take the U.S. out of the equation right now, but Russia, China, Saudi Arabia, and Venezuela. Which do you see as Canada's biggest challenge? Boy, you know, that's the hot spot list. I, I, I would say China. And I would say that, um, and here, here again, I think the challenge, the challenge, there, there is an opening for the Liberals, um, and that is because the sheer conservatives are simply taking the hardest of hard lines. Oh, China's bad. Um, we have to, you know, we, we have to, um, uh, uh, take a hard and principled human rights stand and never mind trade and we have to tell them what's what. And for example, on the Huawei, on the very, very difficult uh, Huawei 5G issue, that's it. We, we don't allow, we don't allow Huawei on the 5G, uh, on Canada's, you know, we ban them from Canada's uh, 5G network and, uh, and, and taking this very black and white stand. Of course, I mean, trade with China it, it matters much more to us than it matters to China. Canada's trade with China, and if we just take the example, you know, the difficult example of the Huawei network. I mean, banning uh, the the uh, Huawei network means Canada loses its 5G network. I mean, it just has it would have an extraordinarily negative impact. On, as opposed to uh, doing what, in fact, interestingly enough, um, uh, some of the other um, countries that Canada works closely with, uh, like the UK, on intelligence matters are trying to do. And that's what they're trying to do is to ensure that they have in place the necessary protections. And, in fact, there's a lot of evidence that Canada is quite able of ensuring the security of its own 5G network. There's also another argument at play here, which you don't hear very much, and that is the success of Huawei, and this is why the Americans have targeted it, is that it has become the leading, it is a leading international um, tech company in, in, in 5G, and way, way ahead of the Americans. Um, they're trying to take out a competitor. And what that, what both China and Huawei have to lose by compromising that company as a global company by using it as a backdoor, a tech, you know, a backdoor for spying. I mean, there's no comparison. They lose far more than they would, than they gain by having this first tier uh, company, which is, um, you know, which is ahead of the U.S. So I, you know, so I, it's interesting on the China one, but again, it, there you have the problem. You have the problem that, you know, you have opposition parties, you have, you know, the sheer conservatives in particular saying, oh, it's black and white, they're bad. Um, the ongoing situation with Hong Kong, people, of course, are worried about, um, you know, about Chinese power. Um, but taking a very black and white position, which had would have very negative consequences for Canada, rather than a far more nuanced one, and one which recognizes that Canada actually has the capacity to ensure that, um, that you know, that, that the network in Canada is not compromised. But it sort of sums up the problem. One is a very black and white approach. Um, although I think there's actual, I think there's polling that indicates that Canadians understand that dealing with country, a country like China, you know, isn't 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 a black and white thing. It, it's more nuanced. But nonetheless, nonetheless, this is this is a huge challenge. Right. Um, and uh, uh, you know, and it and it kind of sums up the 
you know what some of the challenges in foreign policy that are facing you know that the liberal that the liberal government is, has has uh, grappled with and of course on the Huawei situation it goes back to the United States and the fact that you know we were set up I mean you know that whole the whole problem with the the arrest of the uh, chief executive and so on I mean you know we're we were set up by the Americans they put us in this mess and they're doing absolutely nothing to help us out and um you know it's kind of symptomatic of the problem but it also suggests that we really really need uh i come back to my broken record we really need a foreign minister that's really thinking about this looking at where we actually have room to maneuver and where we don't and really looking at working with allies on enlarging those areas where we can work together because clearly you know none none of you know Canada cannot go up against the US on a one on one and so we really have to look closely uh with others and you asked about Russia as well i mean you know again parroting the US position uh on uh, Russia black and white is not helpful either we have ironically even under the harper government the arctic was an area where there was cooperation um with um with canada uh, and Russia, and that that has continued. But you know, alarmingly, the uh, sheer uh, pronouncements on 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 foreign policy seem to be taking a much more confrontational approach with respect to the Arctic, which would which would which would not be in our interest. I mean, as I said, even Harper understood that working cooperatively through the Arctic um, Council um, uh, with Russia was was in everyone's interest. Peggy, I want to thank you for joining us. Uh, It was my pleasure. Thank you very much. Peggy Mason is the president of the Rideau Institute. Foreign affairs and foreign policy of the parties in the next election can be a little opaque for many to try and form an opinion. To look at platforms and how foreign affairs has impacted previous elections, I'm pleased to be joined by Stephen Sademan, the Patterson Chair in International Affairs, as well as the Director of the Canadian Defense and Security Network at Carleton University. And, and Stephen, when it comes to voters, how engaged are they in, in, the, in their country's foreign affairs as a ballot box issue? Well, in, around the world and even in Canada, foreign affairs tends to take a secondary or tertiary place. It's more of a, a metric, not of whether somebody has the best ideas, but whether the potential leader of the party is competent enough at foreign policy. So it's, it's not something that makes people vote for someone, but it is something that might cause people to be a little hesitant about voting for somebody, if that makes sense. Yeah. Now, looking back at Canadian elections, do you recall any that were directly influenced by Canada's foreign affairs policy? Well, I think that the last election, one of the seminal moments, one of the key moments in the campaign was the foreign policy debate. There was a specific debate organized by the Monk Group mm-hmm. uh, in the summer of 2015. And before that, there was a lot of, the, the conservatives got a lot of hay out of calling uh, Trudeau not ready. They said they, they, their main stance on Trudeau was that he's just not ready for, for leading yet. And in that foreign policy debate, he handled himself really well. Uh, he sounded very competent. And so I think he assured, he assured a lot of Canadians that he would handle foreign policy well. And that really disrupted the conservative communications st- uh, strategy because they, they bet a lot on the whole not ready thing. And then once he seemed to indicate that he was ready on foreign policy, uh, again, one of these issues that people look at as being a necessary but not sufficient for voting for somebody, um, 
once 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 he was able to handle the hard issues on that, it made it much harder for the the conservatives to sustain their campaign, uh, and that was really one of the turning points. What wins did Canada score in terms of foreign policy over the last four years? Well. That's a tough question because the, this government came into power at a time where they thought things would be relatively straightforward, and then they got hit with uh, the Trump election, which made everything that Canada was doing in the world much, much more difficult. And so it, the question is, is, in some ways, did a Canada win or did a Canada prevent losses? Uh, and I think so to just focus on big wins might be a little deceptive. But I'd say uh, managing to get through the U.S., uh, Canada trade negotiations or the NAFTA trading negotiations to just modestly modify NAFTA into what is now called USMCA uh, was a huge win given the, the alternatives. Uh, so I think that was that was a big win. Signing a trade agreement with the Europeans, which to be fair was negotiated mostly under the Harper uh, government, um, was also a significant win. Um, so I'd say that I'd put those two at the top. Uh, I think that generally Canada's stature in the world has has been pretty high lately. Uh, people are looking at Canada as being one of the co-leaders of the rules-based international order, uh, which is partly by uh, uh, what's the pro- uh, by 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 the elimination process, where all the other other mm-hmm. countries that seem to be leaders of that have 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 gone by the wayside, whether that's Britain with its Brexit or the United States with Trump. So people look to Trudeau and to Merkel as being the leaders of of the, of the liberal order, and and that's important. Whether that's a big policy win or not is something else entirely. What kind of losses uh, have you seen in uh, Canada deal with over the last four years? I had mentioned in my previous interview with uh, Peggy Mason about the ill-fated India trip and not getting the, <laughs> the deal with uh, with uh, China. What uh, what other losses do you did you see in terms of foreign affairs for Canada over the last four years? Well, I think I think those two are the the, the the big ones that they didn't weren't able to move the needle much on either. Um, it is striking that this government is much better when it works with Europe than it, when it works with Asia. Um, to be fair, though, despite some difficulties along the way, Canada was able to join in on the 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 new agreement that sort of replaces the TPP. I forget the exact initial initials for the Canadian the. Comprehensive Trans-Pacific Partnership. I, I forget exactly yeah. uh, the right acronym, but so that that was actually also a major win. But it it probably was more costly in our relations with Japan than it should have been. That that, that was a little more difficult than it had to be. Um, oh, going back to victories, Canada leading in in, in uh, Latvia was also uh, I think a big win. Uh, in terms of big losses, I'd say yeah, uh, in that. They made a lot of promises about the UN, and they really haven't done much. That the Mali mission was small and short. It was important in terms of providing the capability that was desired by the UN and by uh, some European countries. Uh, but they they really stuck to their guns and tried to get out as quickly as possible. And that I think burned some bridges with with uh, some of the European countries that that wanted to have the Canada stick around a little while longer. Um, so I think the UN file was actually funny that it was supposed to be sort of the big advantage of this new government, but they've been much more of a NATO supporter than a UN supporter, which was sort of the accusation that had been made of Harper. Uh, but actually, this government has been much more pro-NATO than the previous government, but it hasn't really kept up its its you know ambitions when it came, when it comes to NATO. When it, I'm sorry, when it comes to the UN, they they really made a lot of promises about the United Nations. 
and they really haven't moved the needle much on that. Stephen Sediman is the Patterson Chair in International Affairs as well as Director of the Canadian Defence and Security Network at Carleton University. Joining us on the Unpublished Cafe as we talk about foreign affairs heading into the federal election. And, you know, we've seen some platform releases from all the parties. Now, the Conservatives uh, come out and talking about a little a harsher treatment of China, reset the relationship, re-engage the U.S., uh, nothing, nothing concrete noted mainly platitudes to you or or how do you see this well this is a challenge uh that every party that's competing in these elections faces which is canada's foreign policy position in the world hasn't really changed much in terms of its overall goals and objectives and so each party that comes to power sort of launches its own uh defense review and its own foreign policy platform and that it's really more or less the same thing and and so the conservatives can accuse uh the Trudeau of being weak on China, but once you come into power, you realize, wow, China has a lot of leverage over Canada. And so what are you going to do exactly to, to push China around, given that that China can overnight say, we're not going to take in, you know, they've already stopped importing canola oil. They've already stopped importing some other things. They, they can go down the list. And uh, the, the Canadians depend much more on selling to the Chinese market the other way around. Uh, so there's a little, very limited leverage. Uh, so the, the conservatives can promise what they want in that, but they're not going to be able to do that much when they come into power. Considering some of the problems the liberals have had to deal with over the last four years in terms of foreign affairs and foreign policy, do they change course on that platform, or do they just uh, keep going as, as they have been? I think they're going to keep going as they have been. I think they can run on the fact that their defense review was successful, uh, it's funny because when the defense review was being discussed, there was a lot of concern that it wasn't going to be uh, that, that there was a lot of concern that it wasn't going to be much. But it set forth a series of ambitions that were were pretty uh, on target that got a lot of favor from the defense community, both those who are critical of the defense community of of the military, and and, uh, and it was pretty favorable by the military itself. And so, on the defense file. You know, there's going to be lots of accusations about the how to fix, how to replace the next fighter plane, but on most of the issues on the defense file, I think that they can run on the record on a foreign policy. They'll probably talk a whole lot more about their successes in Europe, and they'll probably try to minimize their failures in Asia. Uh, but I don't really see them shifting course in any particular kind of way. Stephen, I want to thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Ed. Stephen Sademan is the Patterson Chair in International Affairs as well as Director of the Canadian Defence and Security Network at Carleton University. Now it's time for you to weigh in with the unpublished.vote. With the exception of the U.S., which country do you feel will be the biggest foreign affairs challenge for Canada? Russia, China, Saudi Arabia, or Venezuela? You can log on and vote right now at unpublished.vote. I want to thank Peggy Mason, president of the Rideau Institute, and Stephen Sademan. He's with Carleton University, the Patterson Chair in International Affairs. And I want to thank you for listening to the Unpublished Cafe. I'm Ed Hand.